Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. We are doing part two in women's health. Last week we talked with Dr. Cheryl, too, about ways to stay healthy and well, particularly in the category of young women. Now, I'm not so young anymore, so we are going to go ahead and talk about the older women as well. Now, before we get started, Dr. Tu, you've been in practice for about 15 years. You've opened up a practice now, wellnessobgyn.com. And you've sort of established this integrative wellness approach to women's health for women of all ages. Mm-hmm. And so that seems to be, I don't want to say it's a novel approach, because I think there's a lot of docs who try and do comprehensive wellness solutions for patients. Uh, but this is a new approach that you're setting up because of your background. And you've trained in osteopathy, and you've also grown up and actually went to acupuncture school too. Is mm-hmm. that right? Right. That's correct. And so are these tools you're doing in your office every day? So the acupuncture, I don't practice anymore. So I, you know, I did that um, prior to going to medical school. So it's been 15 years, <laughs> you know, since I've done acupuncture. So I, I refer for that. You know, I, I still believe in it. Um, but you want someone who is practicing it every single day because they are actually giving your energy and their chi um, into you. They're passing on their healing through the through them, you know, in the treatment. And so you don't want me switching modalities. You don't want me like doing a pap smear or like doing a biopsy or procedure and then trying to calm down and give you that energy to to do acupuncture. So I definitely um, work with a lot of acupuncturists and I, you know, believe that it works. And then if um, patients are also taking some Chinese herbs, I can know what those herbs are and know that, okay, well, you know, this herb actually kind of affects the liver. So we might have to do some monitoring on that. And, um, and just, knowing to try to keep everything in balance, like, you know, knowing that what Chinese herbs are going to work with the Western medicines that they're taking to make sure that there's no interactions, because a lot of Eastern medicine doctors don't know that. Well, and it's nice to have that combination that you mentioned that you do a little bit of both. So you understand you may not be prescribing the Chinese herbs, but you know what they are and you know how to look up interactions because they could interfere with things like birth control. I mean, it's possible. Right. Yeah. There, and then certain things that they're doing to try to like regulate your periods, you know. And then I also know like, you know, if those herbs are not working, sometimes they do need the Western medicine. And, you know, I'm like, well, this is actually going to make you better. You know, like I know you want to do these things to like, you know, help out. So sometimes they'll tell them like, you know, this will help out with your heart or whatever. But I'm like, well, actually, no, I think you actually need to take aspirin or you need to like, you know, be doing something because I, I know what the limitations are, you know, so I'm I'm very open to both ways. Well, and it's nice to have someone who bridges that gap to, that understands the integration of both areas of medicine. So I think that's that's a fabulous skill that you have that not very many people possess. I know when folks ask me about certain things, I may not know, and I can Google them. You know, I can look <laughs> them up. Um, but certainly it's nice to know that people out there have some specific expertise in those areas. Now, last time when we spoke, we were talking about young women and ways they can stay healthy. We talked a little bit about uh, HPV and cervical cancer and why we want to prevent that. We talked a little about STD screening and about things that can complicate pregnancies. Let's talk a little bit about what someone can do if a woman wants to get pregnant. What can she do to make sure that her body is ready for that? And in how can she maximize her health status so that she has the healthiest pregnancy possible? Right. I think, uh, well, the first thing is to be healthy, you know. So if um, you do have some comorbidities, even asthma, you want to make sure that that is under control, you know. Um, 
uh, diabetes, you want to make sure that your sugars are as under control as they can be. Um, thyroid disease, um, you want to make sure that those um, there aren't any recent flare-ups. Um, a lot of reproductive age women have GI issues, so sometimes um, GERD, sometimes irritable bowel syndrome, sometimes ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. And you want to make sure that those are under control. Actually, the GI symptoms do pretty well during pregnancy. You would think that um, it's like, oh my gosh, you're pregnant and it's just right there, you know, but actually a lot of those symptoms actually get lessened with pregnancy. Um, and then the high blood pressure. So high blood pressure is a key one to you want to make sure that that is under control, you know, with or without meds. So a lot of it boils down to diet and exercise. Um, the hypertension will go down. The diabetes will get under control with diet and exercise. And so if you if you do have borderline blood pressure, that could be a risk when you get pregnant. It might go up even higher. And exactly. you've talked a little bit about a condition preeclampsia. What's mm -hmm. that? And why would someone get that? So preeclampsia is when um, you have elevated blood pressures um, and proteins spilling out in the urine. So it actually means that your body is not able to tolerate this pregnancy anymore. You know, like your heart is working that much harder to pump, um, to to care for another growing child inside of you. Um, your kidneys are working that much harder because they have to filter out that much more blood. So when your blood pressure goes up, um, you start to... Is just showing that your heart is working harder, your kidneys are working harder, and your body's not able to tolerate it anymore, you'll start to have protein spilling out in the urine. Um, it manifests as symptoms. So we'll, we'll see people have headaches are kind of like a, a clear indicator. Um, sometimes dizziness, or they'll see blurry vision, um, sometimes some right upper quadrant pain. Um, most of preeclampsia uh, is going to be in the third trimester, though it can happen in the late second trimester as well. If you have elevated blood pressure and it's before 20 weeks, um, that's actually a chronic hypertension. So that's actually some kind of pre-existing condition that's coming out now that you have uh, that you're pregnant. You know, um, and preeclampsia can lead to a lot of different things. So. It's called preeclampsia because eclampsia is actually seizures. So if you have seizures during pregnancy, which is from that elevated blood pressure that's just out of control, think about the consequences for your baby. You know, it depends on how many weeks you are when that happens. Um, but it would mean that we might need to get the baby out right away. So that would be a preterm birth. Now, if somebody is told they have high blood pressure and they either are pregnant or want to get pregnant, there are some safe blood pressure medicines that they can take to help keep their pressure down. Right, right. So um, we kind of use, um, there's a couple of ones like labetalol, and, uh, which is a beta blocker, um, and methyl dopa, uh, which is another. We, we're kind of used to using the tried and true <laughs> medications because all the newer medications, um, you know, we don't want to do studies in pregnant women anymore. So we kind of use ones that we know work well. Um, calcium channel blockers like nifedipine is another one. And we just kind of stick with those because they seem to work well and they control most cases of um, elevated blood pressures. Um, and so those are the ones that we stick with. And those are safe to take during pregnancy. And that's really the key is don't fear if you do have high blood pressure treating it. If you, if you have an opportunity to treat that before you're pregnant to keep it down low enough that pregnancy is safe, 
There are some medicines that have been shown to be safe with pregnancy. Don't just stop your medication if you're concerned. So there is there is recommendations on which ones you might have to change to ones that are safe during pregnancy. Right. But there are ways to do it. So if you have high blood pressure, if you have issues with sugar, you mentioned thyroid. How does autoimmune disease get affected by pregnancy? Because I've heard a variety of different things. Sometimes I hear people told that it gets that it kind of gets better during pregnancy and kind of calms down and then flares again. And then I've heard the opposite. In general, is there any association with how people with these types of, whether it be lupus or you mentioned Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, these could be autoimmune issues. Do they get better? That, that's a difficult one. You know, some autoimmune diseases um, are going to be a little bit easier, like I said, like the Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. I mean, there's things that we always have to watch out for. Um, but actually, yeah, the pregnancy hormones actually do they do well on the GI system. Um, in terms of lupus, uh, lupus is a high risk factor for pregnancy. Um, it leads to uh, preterm birth, preterm labors, placental abnormalities. And so those are things those are things that we do have to watch out for. Um, there can be lupus flares during pregnancy as well. It depends on how well it was controlled um, prior to being pregnant. But with the hormones of pregnancy, um, the muscle and joint pains that can come uh, with pregnancy, they can flare up more. So it may yeah. not be, it may not be the lupus. It may just be pregnancy causing some of these things to happen as well. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to the Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Cheryl too about women's health and what to do to have a safe, healthy pregnancy and what happens afterwards. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here with Dr. Cheryl, too. She was an, she is an OBGYN having a practice called Wellness OBGYN that is available uh, now. She has started integrating Eastern and Western medicine in women's health. And right before the break, we were talking about ways that we treat certain medical conditions when someone is pregnant. And we mentioned high blood pressure is a very serious one. Uh, keep an eye on autoimmune disease. Lupus may cause problems. There are other risk factors that it can, can occur during pregnancy. Now, pregnancy is separated into three trimesters. So you have your first trimester, your second one, your third one. It, not all pregnancies are exactly the same number of weeks. Some women deliver early. Some women deliver late. There are different risk factors that might make that happen. What are some of the reasons why women may have premature birth? Uh, there's a lot of different reasons. <laughs> um, so uh, the thing is that um, preterm births is still, um, you know, cost-wise for the United States, um, we do very poorly. You know, um, our NICU status is actually one of the highest in the world. Um, compared to um, a lot of third world countries, we have a, still a very high rate of preterm births. Um, so the point is that we actually don't know why, you mm. know, um, what leads to preterm births. If we knew, you know, what would predict labor, um, well, my job would be a lot easier because <laughs> I wouldn't have to be on call all the time, you know. Very true. I could schedule it out, you know. Um, so we know that there are certain risk factors. Uh, number one is a history of preterm birth. 
Um, and then um, so besides that, because we don't know if it's going to happen, um, we look for other things. So the other things might be that um, there's um, an intrauterine growth restriction, which means that the baby is too small. It might be because there's a placental abnormality or there's a cord abnormality. So um, these are all things that we're always watching out for, you know, with your visits. Um, then we're we're checking on baby's growth to make sure that it is growing adequately. Um, there's other things like preeclampsia, you know, which might lead the doctor to induce the labor a little bit earlier because it's um, – it was in the maternal's best interest to deliver, and then the baby, we're just going to have to, you know, we it can deal with the consequences. Like, the baby will continue to grow outside of your body as long as it's not continuing to make you sick. So in some cases, there could be no explanation for why someone may have preterm labor, but depending on where in the pregnancy that is, the baby may be able to be fine and survive, hopefully outside of the NICU, maybe even just... Uh, if they were born and stay in the regular maternity ward for a couple of days. Yeah. Um, viability is at 24 weeks about or 400 grams. Um, so our NICUs are actually great. You know, we can take this baby that's one pound and it can grow and it'll grow and actually be um, have a normal, healthy life after that, after being in the NICU for four months, you know, but wow. it can, you know, it can grow after that. Um, so babies are quite resilient. Um, each week that you can get in utero is going to be more beneficial in terms of baby's growth. Um, so, I mean, we just kind of take it week by week if we identify a problem early. So a normal pregnancy would last about how long? So 40 weeks is your due date. Um, and then we consider you full term, though, at 37 weeks. So if there um, was a reason to get the baby out earlier, um, we can do it as early as 37 weeks. Um, so we kind of break that up into um, kind of a, if we we cut that into thirds, we say the first trimester is about 13, 14 weeks. Um or sorry, that's the end of the first trimester, start of the second trimester. And then start of the third trimester would be about 28 weeks. So you mentioned that sometimes there might be a need to have the baby delivered earlier and that we have these higher rates in the United States of preterm labor. Do we also have higher rates of cesarean sections? Um, globally, um, I'm actually not sure about that statistic. You know, I'd say... Um, uh, in the U United States, um, we're about 30% C-section rate, and that's nationwide, you know. Um, I think uh, our hospitals here in Hawaii, we try to keep the rates down. So we're about about like 25% for C-section rates, which is pretty good. Now, yeah. with C-section rates, those are usually done uh, – to have a cesarean section means a surgical delivery. So mm -hmm. that would only be done under certain medical conditions or certain conditions for the mother and the baby – it's not usually something just done out of convenience. It's done for a reason because there's a difference in, in the delivery process for a woman who goes through a medical delivery like a standard vaginal delivery versus a surgical delivery. There could be some recovery periods that are different between both of those. Is it is it generally safer to have a standard delivery as opposed to a cesarean? Uh, I mean, there's pros and cons, <laughs> you know. Um, I know there there are some um, states around the country that um, the mom can ask for an elective C-section, oh, actually okay. without reason, you know, um, just saying that she doesn't want to go through labor or um, she's having a concern um, about um, recovery times or whatnot, um, and where they can elect to have a cesarean delivery. Um 
Yeah, in, in Hawaii, we're kind of against that. Okay. <laughs> you know, we kind of like there to be some kind of medical reason. Um, so uh, typical medical reasons are so baby's not in the right position, right? So if the baby has to come out head first, if the baby is not head down, um, there might be something wrong with the pelvis shape or the uterus shape that's not allowing that baby to turn down. So that would be um, an indication for a C-section. Um uh, most of the time, C-sections are done for failure to progress. So you're in labor, and um, for whatever reason, the cervix is just not dilating, and we're doing the best that we can to help promote that vaginal delivery. Um, and at least we know, you know, there's another way the baby can come out, you know. Um, if uh, the baby is going to be too big, so actually um, – if you are diabetic, um, the baby will have to be over 5,000 grams. Um, if you're not diabetic, then if we are determining by ultrasound that baby is over 4,500 grams, then um, we would we would basically say that you need to have a C-section. It's actually really rare that we'll get um, babies that actually ultrasound, you know, that high. Um, kind of just depends. And we usually kind of plan for getting the baby out a little bit earlier if it reaches that point. So yeah. the reason would be safety for the baby because it's exactly. weighing a certain amount that it might be hard for the baby to come out through the standard process through the pelvis. Right. And then the other big one is is mostly repeat C-section. So whatever reason why you had a C-section before, if you desire to not have to go through that again where you might have to um, – you know, you go through a trial of labor after cesarean, and um, there are certain risks involved. Um, one of the major risks is that the uterus can rupture, which would be um, very rare, actually. Um, but we know that it can happen, so you're monitored the whole time. But if you're not tolerating the labor and you just don't want to have to deal with that anymore, then you can just ask for a repeat C-section. Well, and you're right. There are some potential risks. Plus, if you've already had a C-section, you may be more comfortable with the process of recovery and how that takes place and therefore be okay with those. Exactly, yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes it's actually nice because you're a mom and you have things that you have to plan. And so having a planned scheduled C-section is actually really helpful. <laughs> yeah, it certainly sounds like there could be some benefits to that. Now, how long does it usually take women to recover after delivery? Uh, I would. I don't know if there's a usual. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, some people do great and they recover right away. And it, it just kind of depends. Um, everyone's delivery is so unique. Um, and um, that's what we're there for. You know, we're there to help guide you with, um, you know, every step along the way. So um, it depends on the shape of your pelvis. It depends on the shape of the baby. Um, depends if there was a laceration or not, you know. Um, but it might depend on how many babies you've had. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, there's just a lot of different factors involved. I wouldn't say that there's a usual. <laughs> we, we tend to check people. Uh, postpartum appointment is between four to six weeks for vaginal delivery two weeks for the C-section so that we can take a look at the scar. Um, so there's like a postpartum period as general guidelines, um, you know, within that six weeks. Um, but you're not recovered necessarily by then. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Dr. Cheryl, too. And we'll talk about what happens after fertility. What about perimetopause? What are some of the general concepts that we need to consider? And are hormones good for everybody? And if so, what are the difference between standard hormones, bioidentical hormones, and even just good old birth control hormones? We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we are finishing up part two of our women's health special with Dr. Cheryl Too. She has an excellent identification of what are some of the ways to incorporate both Eastern and Western medicine techniques taking care of women through various stages of life. And what we talked about last week were young women, and now we're moving towards the journey of pregnancy for women, and we have reached perimenopause. So this is certainly a topic near and dear to my heart, and I'm sure it's near and dear to many other women as well. This is what happens before you go through menopause. What are some of the changes that can occur? And as women get towards this time in their life, and usually, you know, I would say in your mid-40s through your 50s or so, hormone changes are going to happen, like it or not. It's, It's coming along. What are some of the general symptoms that women may have that make them recognize maybe they're in this perimenopausal period? Right. So a lot of women go through the transition period just fine. You know, um, the first thing is going to be the irregular periods. So um, perimenopause, uh, actually perimenopause means before and after. So um, you can still have these kind of hormonal changes. Even um, we say kind of say fully menopause is one year without a period. Um, and even like, you know, uh, two to three years afterwards, you can still actually hot flashes like at that time can start. So um, most people will have the irregular periods where your periods will um, either start to be just a little bit more erratic, right? Um, They're not going to be every month. They might skip some months. So they might come every like three months and then sometimes be heavier because they're making up for lost time. Um, Sometimes they'll just be, you know, like one day of spotting and then two weeks later, another day of spotting. So everyone is a little bit different, um, but mostly the irregular periods is when people start to notice some symptoms. So um, the other most common thing is going to be hot flashes. Yeah. So hot flashes, sometimes they're, um, you know, tolerable, you know, so they go like, oh, yeah, they change layers of clothing or they can wear, use a fan or go in the AC. And those are all fine. Um, when people have it constantly, sometimes every 20 minutes, sometimes every hour, that's when it starts to become a problem for them. Night sweats are also common. So um, not only the lack of sleep from waking up at night with um, the night sweats, um, but then they're not able to go back to sleep too. So insomnia or sleep disturbance in general is going to be a big one. And if you're still working, you know, so you're still like you're not at retirement age yet, that can really affect your day, you know, if you're waking up several times at night and then not able to go back to sleep. Um, There's other things like um, a little bit of memory fogginess, you know, Um, uh, mood swings is another really common one. Um, And so not everyone has all of these things, um, but these are the major ones that people will say that, you know, they can't live like this anymore. They can't function. They can't do their normal daily activities. So in that case, if it starts to affect anything they're trying to do during the day, some women will choose to consider hormones. Now, I remember way back when with the Women's Health Initiative studies, Mm -hmm. we used to have a lot of women take hormones around perimenopausal time or through menopause. And then there were some questions about whether or not it might put women at risk for different things. There were some concerns about breast cancer with the use of progesterone and some concerns about endometrial cancer without the use of progesterone. So so a lot of women who were previously on hormones were told maybe it's not such a good idea. And then there's a whole generation of menopausal women who were told, yeah, maybe not so much on the hormones. But nowadays we're looking at different ways that that actually 
might not be the personalized approach that women need. So what would be some of the reasons that women should consider hormones going through this perimenopausal phase? I think you just mentioned that, you know, if you can't live with the symptoms and it's just your life is not able to function, then that might be one of the indications. But what are some common reasons why people might, why women might choose hormones during this time? Uh, well, so let me just start off by saying, um, I think, you know, in the 80s, or even when I was um, training, you know, during uh, residency, it was um, every single woman just going through menopause, you would go to see your doctor, and they they were told, you need to be on hormones, and they would just give them hormones. And some women were even taking it without even knowing what it was for. You know, <laughs> they just said, like, oh, this is, um, uh, they, my doctor told me I need to take this, you know. Then, um, oh, I'm sorry, vaginal atrophy is another big one. <laughs> you know, it's like vaginal dryness. Yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, so then when the Women's Health Initiative came out, um, you know, they were taking um, like 100,000 women and, and did the studies. And actually, mo- a lot of them were nurses as well. Um, and they followed out their progression with them being on this hormone, and they actually had to stop the study early. The study was planned to be 10 years, and I think they stopped it after three because um, they realized the, the great increased risk of heart disease you know, amongst these women. So then everyone was stopped from being on hormones. But the, actually, the study kept going on. you know. So even though it was stopped at a certain point, they actually did follow out as many women as they can for the 10 years. And so now a lot of it has changed again because we're having more of these findings come out. And then other studies are coming out as well. So now really the goal is to, we know that there are women that do benefit from hormones, you know, and have been on hormones for a long time and haven't been getting cancer and haven't been getting heart disease, you know. Um, And so those women can be monitored. Um, Our goal really is to individualize treatment. Um, So people that do think that they need to be on hormones um, and don't, you know, necessarily have any risk factors, maybe not a lot of family history of heart disease, um, family history of having cancers on hormones, um, then those are also safe candidates to put on hormones. Um, and with the goal of having the minimal dose possible for the shortest duration possible with the goal of trying to get them off within five years. So most people have these menopausal symptoms only for about three to five years um, when like the hot flashes are, say, the worst. And then after that, they can come safely off these hormones and then go about their, their normal lives um, uh, very well. Yeah. So um, only a few people do have symptoms for 10 to 20 years. And those people we do have to monitor and we still we can keep them on it as long as it's safe. And so it sounds like what you try and do is a personalized approach to hormones based on the individual, what their symptoms are, their family history, any other additional risks that they may have. And that whole analysis helps you to determine, are they a good candidate for this? And what are the doses that you could consider? And what form of these types of hormones could you do for them? Exactly. Yeah. So um, I do a lot of counseling about um, diet, nutrition. There's some supplements that I think can really help. Um, So not everyone has um, the same types of symptoms, you know, and if and maybe, you know, they don't want to be on hormones for whatever reason, you know, they even have like they had a friend that got you know, breast cancer, and it's not even in their family history, but they just don't feel comfortable being on hormones. There's some other things that you can try first, you know, um, that, um, and if that works, it works. Um, And so we try to go through that kind of counseling first. Um, If we do need to move on to the next step, then you let me know when it's not tolerable for you. 
So it really is this individualized approach that I think is ideal to take a look at somebody's comprehensive health history and determine what works best for them. And there's there's some women who want to know about a variety of different ways and the hormone counseling that you do probably integrates whether or not this is a bioidentical hormone or a standard hormone prescription. All of this can be personalized to the individual. Well, I can't believe our time is up, but I do want to mention that you you have an office now, Wellness OBGYN, and if people want to find that, they can find it on the web at uh, wellnessobgyn.com. And if you refer a friend to come and be seen, there's a little there's a little added bonus for you. Is that right? Right. So we're doing a promotion. Um, so if you um, call in and you are a new patient um, or are referring a new patient, then um, we like to give you like a little small gift, you know, for my soft opening. So um, uh, come in and you'll be receiving some kind of uh, <laughs> a little gift at our office. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you for giving us a gift of sharing your expertise with us. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you right here next Monday. <laughs>